0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. There's a, a part of the machinery in my car, the part that's under the hood, that I didn't fully appreciate. I knew it was there. In fact, I think at some point, someone pointed it out to me under the hood. I knew it was there, but I didn't fully appreciate it until it was gone. In fact, I took it for granted, I think, every single day until one day it was gone, and I was very, very aware. It was the power steering. Anyone ever had that experience where all of a sudden the power steering of your vehicle goes out and you become aware of what it would be like to steer that vehicle without power steering? Anyone had that experience before? Yes, many of us. As I was driving along, what made this a very memorable moment for me was not just that the power steering went out, it was where I was driving when the power steering went out, okay? It was right here. I'm going to show you a picture of this spot in South Florida. (laughs) That is the interchange between 595 and I-95, and there's one of those, it's right about the middle, it's, um, it's like the light yellow, it's the going eastbound from 595 to go northbound on I-95. You know the one on the very top, the highest one above all the others, okay? Yeah, that's where I was, okay? So I want you to envision, I was, I was out here in Southwest Broward area, I was driving up to Fort Lauderdale. I get on 595, I I was going eastbound, I want you to go there in your mind, okay? It was in the morning, so there was rush hour, okay? Sorry to get your heart palpitating faster at just the mere thought of it, but that's where I was. I was driving eastbound and I go, get in the far right lane, I excuse me, I battle to get into the far right lane to get off of 595, to go over the, the overpass and on onto I-95 North. Can you picture this? Can you picture that spot? I'm going there and I actually love that overpass because it's one of the highest in South Florida. And as you are cresting over that curve, you've got Port Everglades straight ahead of you, you've got the airport, the Hollywood International Airport to the right, and just over the horizon. You see Fort Lauderdale in all its glory, the, the sun shining down in the morning on all of those buildings. And as I'm getting ready, as I'm driving, and I'm about to view this picture, it's right at the top that all of a sudden, I lose power steering. And I'm gripping this, this the steering wheel, and I'm realizing that I can't just turn over, like I can't just turn it and make the curve, and I realize I can't stop. I'm surrounded by vehicles. I can't pull over. There's no place to pull over on that space. And I'm now thinking I am most likely going to hit the side, plummet off, hit all the other overpasses on the way down. And land on the ground in a ball of flames. And that will be the end. Okay? As I muscle through, I'm realizing, okay, like I'm I don't even like country music. I'm singing Jesus take the wheel at this point. Okay, like I'm like, (laughs) this is not gonna happen and I make, like finally make the turn over and I was thinking about sharing the story with you this weekend and I'm like, how did the story, what did I do after that? And honestly, I have no idea what happened next. I don't know if I called a tow truck, if I called a friend, if I blacked out for a while. It was so traumatizing, I've forgotten. I made it alive though, I am alive, okay? Made it through it. But I, there's only one person that clapped when I said that I was alive. Thank you! What in the world, people? Cooper City, I know you clapped immediately. I love you, Cooper City, and you love me, all right? Anyway, I had this moment. I mean, every day I drive that same car and it's easy. You know, I can drive with one hand, with a cup of coffee, like if I wanted to just test the limits, one finger. It was so easy because I've got power steering under the hood. But there was a moment, a critical moment where suddenly I realized I cannot control this vehicle. And I, I tell you that story because there's something that this text talks about. And it reminds me of that same dynamic that we often have in our lives. Every day we walk through life so often and we're safely in control. We've got our hands on the steering wheel. And it's only every now and then when a crisis comes that we say, whoa, I don't have control. Jesus, I need you. And at that point I need you to take over. Every other day, I'm in control. I'm the driver. I can handle it. It's just every now and then I need you to step in. But that's a premise that this passage really challenges us. And so I want you to lean in on what this passage has to say. And whether you've been following Jesus for just a few minutes or um, your entire life, or you're just exploring what it means to follow Jesus, I want you to be challenged by what James says in this passage. Because there's something under the hood that every follower of Jesus, every genuine follower of Jesus has or is is growing in, and James exposes what that is. I want you to open to James chapter 1. We've been working through in this series the first couple uh, chapters of the book of James, and as we're concluding this series, I want to go back to the very first verse in this chapter. And earlier in our series, there we gave an overview of verse 1 and talked about just the basics to get our bearings in the book of James, but we're actually going to end our series by going back to verse 1. We're going to review some of that, but we're going to drill down into what James 1.1 1, 1 says because it's actually profound for our lives and very instructive. So I want you to look at James chapter 1. This, uh, today we're going to be looking at verse 1. It says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, a little bit of a review. This is the typical opener to a ancient letter. This is how ancient letters would uh, begin. We usually put our signatures at the end of letters, that's often that's because there's an envelope that has a return address, you already know who it's from. But if you have a scroll and all it has is a seal on it, uh, or just some kind of wax way of closing it, then you would wanna know right up front, who is this from? So they would start with who it's from. He says, this is a letter written from a guy named James. There are a couple significant individuals by the name of James in that first generation of Christians. One of them is a guy that is sometimes known as James the Great, He wasn't known as that in his day, but later in church history, they remember him as James the Great. This is James, the son of Zebedee, James, the brother of John, James, one of the followers, one of the 12 followers of Jesus, one of the 12 disciples. There were many followers, but 12 disciples, 12 apostles, and he was that James the Great, was um, part of that inner circle. Jesus had had his followers, the 12, and then he had this inner circle of Peter, James, and John. So he's remembered as James the Great. He followed Jesus through his entire ministry. That is not the James that is writing this book of the Bible. There's another James, and he is known in church history as James the Less. Just kind of a bummer to be known as James the Less. I mean, why not just like James also good? Okay, I don't know, but it had to be James the Less. But this is who that James is. That is James, the brother, the biological brother of Jesus. Now we sometimes forget, Mary and Joseph had many children. They had uh, after Jesus, they had sons and daughters. James was one of them, probably the second oldest. Now, technically speaking, all of those siblings would technically be half brothers and sisters of Jesus because of the virgin birth. Jesus shared DNA with Mary. The rest of them shared DNA with Mary and Joseph. You follow me? James, interestingly, was not a follower of Jesus during his ministry. In fact, James and some of his other brothers got a little concerned about all the things that Jesus was saying, thought that he was going too far, maybe a little crazy, and tried to confront him about it. Now, before you think low of James, before you think bad of James, think about what it must have been like to have an older sibling be Jesus. Some of you have those older siblings in your life, and you're kind of in um, their shadow a little bit, like, it'd be tough to be James, the second born, Okay. You can imagine at some point, James would be like, look, it's, it's not like he walks on water. <laughs> he, he did, though, James. It's all about Jesus, as if he's perfect or something. He, he is actually perfect, James. We're sorry, okay? It'd be tough to be James. But it'd be fascinating to talk to James. When I get to heaven one day, this is... What was it like, you know, seeing Jesus as a kid? I mean, James knows all of those things. You would have wanted to be around James. James knows what it was like when all of the kids from Mary and Joseph's family, they all went out and were splashing in puddles, and Jesus kept landing on top, okay? Like, he knows, like, what that was like. I want to know those things. Like, what was it like to be Jesus' little brother, okay? But James even though he didn't believe in Jesus during his ministry, after Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, Jesus started appearing to all of his followers, his disciples, and the Bible tells us that he specifically appeared to his brother James. And that changed everything. James not only became a follower and a believer of Jesus, but it radically changed his life. James became a a pivotal leader in that early church, that first generation. James became the leader of the Jerusalem church, which for many years was the headquarters. And as the other apostles and disciples are going out all over the world, the known world at the time, and those 12, they're going out, and others are going all around the world, out into into Asia, up into Europe, down into Africa. They're going all around to share the message about who Jesus was. James was appointed, James, the brother of Jesus, this James was appointed to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, he says, this is who's writing it. It's James, and he's writing to what he says, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now, there's, there's a lot in there, and that's a whole rabbit hole we could go down. Let me just give you the short version. Here's who he's writing to. The 12 tribes, that is kind of theological language for Israel. When he says the 12 tribes in dispersion, it remembers back to when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel— 10 of the tribes, not the southern tribe of Judah, but the 10 northern tribes, and then dispersed them all throughout their empire so that they completely lost their national and tribal identity. So how is he writing to the 12 tribes? How is he writing to Israel out in the dispersion? This is theological language that he's saying, those I'm writing to, those who have accepted the Jewish Messiah are those who are the people of God. So those who are Jewish Christians accepting the Jewish Messiah and those who are Gentiles who accept Jesus the Jewish Messiah and are being grafted in are the people of God, the new Israel. In other words, he's writing to Christians all over the world you can see his significance that he might write a letter would go to pa- be passed around copied passed around to churches all over the known world and would be meticulously preserved all the way to modern day you can see his influence so if he's writing that letter you would imagine that he would give his credentials at the front end, right? This is who's writing you, this is why I'm writing you, this is you know, kind of subtly why I should be writing you, have the right to be writing you, and why you should listen. You'd think he would front load his letter with his credentials, but I wanna show you James one again. Um, He describes himself very simply. There are places Paul, says Paul, an apostle of Christ. Now there's there's different ways people introduce themselves, but I want you to see how James introduces himself. Let's look at one one again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Doesn't say, James, half brother of Jesus. I'd have probably led with that. Imagine the comments James probably got, people who knew Jesus man, James, sometimes when you just throw your head back and laugh, I can remember what Jesus' laugh sounded like. You have that mannerism that you do. It's just like Jesus. You know, it's that part of your face. You know, it's this part right around the eyes. I feel like I'm looking into Jesus' eyes. It must have been extraordinary to be James. I, I probably would have led, this is James. Remember, I know things about Jesus that you don't. But he doesn't say that. Not James, the half-brother of Jesus. He could have said, James, the bishop of Jerusalem, James, the pastor of all the other pastors in Jerusalem, James, the leader of the church in that city. He could have led with that. That's, That's significant. That's important. Doesn't mention it. He could have said, James, an eyewitness of the risen Lord. James, Jesus, after his resurrection, took time to come visit me. I am an eyewitness. I know Jesus was dead. I saw Jesus having defeated death and come back to life. That's who's writing you an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But that wasn't relevant for him. It's very simple. He's like, here's what you need to know about me. I'm a servant of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Now, this word for servant is the Greek word doulos. And that's a significant word, the word doulos. And I want to take a moment on that. Um, So I want you to say the word doulos with me. So on three, let's say it. One, two, three, doulos. That Greek word is a notoriously difficult word to translate into modern English. English. There's a couple different ways it can be translated. It's a significant word, though. In fact, um, we're reading out of the English Standard Version. There's a lot of really wonderful versions of the Ancient Greek New, uh, New Testament. We are reading out of the English Standard Version typically on Sundays, and in the preface of the entire English Standard Version, The translation team includes an entire paragraph on this word. They identify a couple Greek words that are challenging to interpret, but important. And they talk about why they picked what they did to translate that as. Doulos is one of them. You can go back later and look if you have an ESV in the preface and read it. Um, Doulos can be translated a couple different ways. Now, why am I telling you this? Am I just nerding out on you about Greek translation? No. Okay, maybe a little bit but mainly this is actually a significant word and I want to tell you why. This word can be translated as servant like this version does. It could be translated as bond servant or it can be translated as slave. If you're reading through the New Testament and you come across the word slave, there's a high likelihood the word doulos is behind that word. Now, If there was, there's not a one-to-one correlation between doulos and a modern Greek word, where when we hear the, or a modern English word, excuse me, that when we hear that English word, we're like, oh, I understand what they're talking about. Um, But the closest would be the word slave. But here's the challenge, and this is what they discuss as translators. The challenge is when we uh, modern Westerners, English speakers, when we hear the word slave, What we associate with it is the horrific, wicked, dehumanizing atrocity that was the transatlantic slave trade. We have a very specific understanding and association with the word slave. But the Greek word doulos is not describing that system from two, three, four hundred years ago. It's describing something that is two thousand years old. Doulos is different than what we associate with the idea, uh, what we would typically associate with the idea of slave, and that's significant. Because there are times, if we import what we're thinking of in terms of the word slave, if we import that into some of the passages that the Bible's describing, it can be very confusing. Now, there's a whole discussion in this that we don't have time to go into all that today. Um, But we are going to do a podcast on the City Rev Life podcast this week on this subject. I want to encourage you to check out the podcast. We're going to talk about this subject so that it will illuminate other passages. But let me just give you the basics right now. The doulos from the uh, the Greco-Roman doulos was different than what we think of, the horrors of what we think of, um, and when we think of the word slave. The doulos was a different system. It was a system, now I I'm, I'm certainly do not hear me defending this system because there were horrors that happened within this system as well, but it was much more nuanced, much more varied. For example, someone who was a doulos, the expectation was most often in their life they found freedom could be within seven years, it could be a little bit longer, but often they were freed. It wasn't just a lifelong, with no hope, type of loss of freedom. Secondly, the doulos was not the lowest segment of society. They were varied in all throughout various parts of society. There were some civic leaders that were a doulas. There were doctors and physicians that were, do, that were considered a doulas. There were administrators. There were all different types of people all throughout that strata. A could own their own property. They could save up money. And many, when they found their freedom, they would stay in a business relationship with the person that was their lord or their master. Be- and they a uh, doulos, many many people, and this would be that segment of bond servant. Many many people would actually surrender their freedom, enter into that doulos contract, surrender their freedom for a period of years, like seven years, as a way to get further up in society. In fact, it wasn't; uh, it was encouraged to educate a doulos. It was not uncommon for a household to educate a dolos beyond their own education. And so many people would surrender their freedom, enter into that doula's relationship so that they could get a stable, steady job, get training and enter into a higher part of society. Now again, this was not a uh, this was not all a good system for sure. But it's historically mature to approach not reading our culture and our thoughts into a text, but to pause, put that on the shelf, and to hear the cultural context that the Bible is speaking out of and into. More on that in the podcast this week. But here's what you need to realize that James is saying. When he calls himself a servant, he's not describing himself like a butler. This is not like a cook, a maid, a valet. This is not like that. It's not a chauffeur, a driver. It's not like that. He's describing, he says, I'm a doulos of Jesus. I have surrendered my freedom to Jesus. He is, and then he calls him, he is my Lord. I have given all of my freedom over to him. Man, obviously something dramatic has happened for James, the half-brother of Jesus. You don't say that about a sibling. You don't say that about a rabbi. You don't say that about a prophet or a teacher. He says here, I am, I am a doulos of God and Jesus Christ my Lord Jesus is his God and his Lord, and he has surrendered his freedom to Jesus. What's under the hood of a follower of Jesus? According to James, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a doulos. That was all that he bothered to describe about himself. It's like the essence of who I am is I'm a loss of Jesus. The essence of who I am is someone who's given the freedom over to Jesus. The most important thing you could know about me, the thing, if there's any influence I have, it's because I'm a servant of Jesus. That is the essence of who he is. And the challenge of surrendering all control to Jesus, as being a servant, a bond servant, a slave, to be a loss to Jesus, the challenge is surrendering freedom and control. This is another of the crazy paradoxes Of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish. Let me put it another way. This is another one of the crazy paradoxes of realizing that Jesus is the king and making Jesus the king of our lives. This is the paradox. What are some of the other ones that he said? Jesus said it like this He said, If you want to be the greatest, be the servant. It's a paradox. He said, if you really want to find your life, you have to lose it. Surrender it to me. He says, in other words, if you really want to find freedom, the scripture says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. If you want to find freedom, truly live a life free. The incredible paradox is you surrender that freedom to King Jesus. It's we take our lives and we surrender the control of our life. Now, control is an interesting thing because we associate control with a particular type of personality. There's what we would often describe as controlling personalities. Now, before you elbow your spouse sitting next to you, okay, before you do that, The interesting thing about control is it's not limited to one type of personality. Control is an instinct and reflex that every single human has. Some control through very forceful personalities, but some control through very passive personalities. In, in every sense we have a we have an impulse for control it's easy to see what we would call a controlling personality it's got to be their expectation it's got to be the way they've ima- imagined it it's got to be what they want and they force everyone else through guilt through intimidation through shame through whatever it is they force everyone else to fit to their expectation it's a controlling personality it's easy to see the impulse for control with that personality but there is another impulse for personality through a very passive personality, because maybe the number one thing that personality wants is peace. And so there may be times that they should step up and defend someone. They should step up and speak the truth, but because they want to control comfort, control peace around them, or because they want to control maintaining and not risking a relationship that they really need, they control that peace and that relationship through their passivity. See, control as an impulse goes all the way back to the garden. When they, Adam and Eve could have just followed what God said, maybe not fully understanding the implications, but the enemy said, oh, God's just trying to hold you back. Why don't you go seize what you want? And sin entered into the world. Control is an impulse all of us have. But to follow Jesus is to become a do-loss and surrender to him. Can we, just, can we just take this, it's very practical, but before we get practical, can we just take this one step deeper? You know, if you think about religion, the religious framework is just another way people use to control. But the levers to control their life are just spiritual levers. So as they're trying to maintain control, I want you, let's just distance ourselves from it for a second. I want you to imagine that tribal religion in the jungle where there's a rain god and they're trying to control the harvest. So they do this ritual, this chant or this sacrifice to they do that religious activity to control the harvest they want. I want you to imagine even something like uh, Buddhism, some parts of Buddhism say, if you want to find that, that release of pure peace, you have to empty your mind. You have to reject all passions. You have to step into that space and they're giving you the spiritual chores in order to achieve what you want. Other religions, whether it's Islam or whatever it may be, it's here are the things you need to do. You need to take this pilgrimage. You need to give this generosity. You need to follow these moral codes. And if you do these things, pray these prayers, you do these spiritual chores that is you're putting your hands on these spiritual levers and you're then controlling the outcome that you want and many take christianity and they run it through that same framework okay i really need god here so i'm gonna dial up my prayers I'm going to dial up my church attendance. I'm going to dial up my Bible reading. I'm going to dial up my kindness to people. I'm going to dial up my generosity. I'm trying to get this, and here's the things I'm going to do. And our impulse is to keep our hands on the control of our life through spiritual levers. And we turn Christianity into that. But the, the incredible paradox, again, is Jesus said, it doesn't work like that. You just... Follow me. What if I follow you, does this mean you don't know? You just surrender. But doesn't that make logical sense? Because the claim of the Christian faith, the scripture, is that the Son of God, Jesus, is the one true living God. How could you engage a living God in a framework where you're trying to control him. That sounds false. That sounds man-made. It logically makes sense that how you engage the one true living almighty creator God is through a framework of 100% complete surrender. It just makes sense. So here's the question. Do we try to maintain and enjoy and take for granted that we're controlling our life, and every now and then when it gets crazy, then we invite Jesus in? Or are we living the pattern that James is teaching us and surrendering our freedom to him? I think this is very practical. And what I wanna do, just very quickly, I wanna be pastoral to you, and I wanna give you what I think are the top five most difficult ways to surrender to Jesus. I'm gonna work backwards. Top five most difficult ones, here's number five, is our pleasures. There are things that we like doing, that we want to do, that if Jesus asks us to give them up, it's just hard. Some of them he might give them up because they're sin. And we ask, well, who's it really hurting? It's not hurting anybody. If it's sin, it is always hurting you and people around you in ways you can't even imagine. But there may be other reasons. He may just say, hey, this is, this is consuming too much of your life, this is consuming too much of your time, this is consuming too much of your focus, or I need your focus over here, and so it's hard to let go of our pleasures, but I think that's number five. I think there are things that are even more difficult than that. Number four, I think the number four most difficult thing to surrender control of to God is money. Because we look at money and we say, well, I've earned this, this is mine. But for starters, if there is a God, everything is his. Secondly, if we've surrendered to Jesus, it's all his. If we're a doulos, it's all his. And so it's just like our our young adults are actually talking about this, this weekend. We have to choose, and Jesus brings us to the showdown between God and money, because money makes a really good God. And every Christian has to ask themselves a question Am I using Jesus to serve money, or am I using money to serve Jesus? Am I saying, this is every cent I have, Jesus, how do you want me to use it? Or am I saying, okay, I have my financial goals, I have the the income I want, I have the success I want, Jesus, uh, can you help with this over here? Look what I've done for you, Jesus, I'm asking you to help with this. Do we use Jesus to serve money, or do we use money to serve Jesus? It's one of the hardest things to give up. That's actually why so many people, it's one of the reasons so many people, they don't want money to be talked about at church. Because they're like, no, no, I'm going to hold on to this. And don't you dare talk about this. But if, one of the, if we're responsible to talk about the scripture, the scripture says we surrender everything to Jesus. But that's just number four. Harder than money, I think, to surrender control is people. We, And it's not just a pers- specific personality type. We have expectations on people around us we have expectations of what we what we want friends to be what we're expecting coworkers and employees to be, what we're expecting our kids to be, what we're expecting our spouses to be. We have these expectations and it's so hard to surrender them because they're operating so far under the surface that we don't even realize that they're happening. But if we've surrendered control of our lives to Jesus, then we're certainly going to surrender trying to control other people's lives. And instead of saying, I am going to be a presence in your life to make you the way I want you, It's surrendering control, saying, Jesus, you have them on a journey to make them like you want them to be, to make them like you, not the way I want them to be. And when I surrender those expectations of Jesus, that you have them on a journey, how can I serve you and serve them? The paradox is it actually makes all of those relationships more healthy. It's just hard to discern when that's operating under the surface. Number two... Boy, this is a challenge, surrendering our time. So much easier to just write a check or give money than give time. Because you can never get that time back. We always feel like we're out of time. But we all have the same amount of time. And the reality about time is we just use it for the things we care most about. And we always think we don't have enough time to give back to Jesus in one way or another, whether it's Time worshiping him, time serving him, or just responding to the interruptions he's brought into our day or into our life. That he says, hey, I know you plan to do this, but how about you stop and deal with this right now? But if we've surrendered our time, if we've surrendered to Jesus, we've surrendered our time. But here's the hardest one. The number one hardest thing to surrender to Jesus is your story. I have been hearing this phrase more and more. It's specifically popular in life coaching. It's challenging people to step in and be the lead role of their life. Be the main character of your story. And the challenge there is coming from, hey, don't be controlled by other people. Don't try and live up to their expectations. And from that standpoint, understand why that's a helpful thing for people to think about. But here's the reality. If we're a loss of Jesus, if what's under the hood of our life is that we've surrendered our entire lives and surrendered control to Jesus, then we're not the main character of our story. Jesus is the main character of our story. And staying as the main character of my story actually will end up destroying me Here's why. As I was reading a blog, it was all challenging people to be the main character in their own story. And they're saying five things to keep in mind as you do that. One of them said, be respectful to your supporting cast. And I thought, wow. Inevitably, if I'm the main character of my own story, that means everybody else in my life is a supporting cast. And here's what that means. That means I don't even realize I'm looking at my friends as the supporting cast of my life. That's not a good person to be a friend to. That doesn't make for healthy friendships. That means that when I go to small group, I'm looking at my group, your support, the supporting cast for my life. So when I don't need you, I'm not gonna show up. That's not the recipe for a healthy small group. That means my kids As much as I love them, as much as I'm cheering for them, they are a reflection of me because they're supporting cast. I'm the main character. That's not a healthy relationship parent to child. That means my spouse, I have a a story I'm living out. I'm the main character, and my spouse is a supporting role. That's not a recipe for a healthy marriage. So what's the solution? Jesus is the main character of your life. Our lives, we live to make Jesus known. We live and serve him. And we we surrender the expectations of our life because this wrecks, this, this last one wrecks so many people's faith because they have this expectation of what they're expecting their life to be, what they want their life to be. And as they're going along, when their expectations, wait, God, this is not what I expected. This is not what I planned. This was not my dream. How come you let this happen? It's because they've been holding on to their plan for their story, their expectation of how they would write their story and Jesus is messing it up rather than saying, it's your story I care about. Christian, can I challenge you to spend more time thinking and praying and praising the story of Jesus than even what's happening in your own story? Jesus is the main character of your story. You say, well, look, what you're saying, those five things, those are like... That's a lot. How far do you take this? I mean, maybe I'll dial it up a little bit, but this is kind of an all-or-nothing thing that you're describing. How far should we take it? Well, let me tell you how far James did, this author here. This is how far James took it. A few years, many years later, after Jesus went back to heaven, in Jerusalem, the same group of, of leaders the same group that had killed Jesus they were tired of this of christianity being spread this worship of Jesus spreading and they said if we can take their leader and get rid of him then we'll help squelch what's happening here in Jerusalem and they took this James and they took him right during according to multiple historical accounts they took him to the top pinnacle of the temple, the highest point in the temple. So all around Jerusalem, you could see him and they put him right on the edge. And they said to him, James, tell them, tell them that Jesus is not the way. He knew what they were capable of. And he stood there right on the corner. And it was an opportunity to save himself, justify himself, preserve himself. And you know what he took that opportunity? He preached down to the people of Jerusalem who Jesus was as the way, the truth, and the life. The only Savior and promised Messiah. And you know what they did? Pushed him off. And he fell crashing onto the ground they mobbed his body and they stoned and clubbed him to death. That's how far James took it. How could, man, how could James took it, take it that far? Christian, because that's what Jesus did for you. He took the cross, despising its shame to pay for your sin and provide a way for you to be saved for eternity. That's what Jesus did for you. And if we're following in his footsteps, bearing his name, it is our joy to give this life back to him in anticipation to spending eternity with him. Can I challenge you Where is the Holy Spirit nudging you to surrender control? Don't leave here without surrendering even more deeply to a Savior who loves you more than you can imagine. Make him your Lord. Let me lead us in a prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Would you just take this moment of prayer silently, quietly between you and God? And if there's an area of your life that is not surrendered to him, or many areas of life that you're still trying to control, please repent of it now. That means call it what it is, it's a sin. Surrender it and ask for the Holy Spirit's help to never return back to it. Would you surrender to him? He's not just your savior. Would you make him your Lord, your king? That's how you find freedom. Some of you, it's your moment of salvation because you've used... Following Jesus, Christianity, is if it's like every other religion where you're maintaining control, but finding a Savior in Jesus means surrendering all control. And so today you're like, I'm truly understanding what it means to follow Jesus. I'm surrendering in faith to that today. And if that's you, let me lead you in this prayer. Say, Jesus, silently in your heart right now, say, Jesus, I surrender to you. You are my Savior. You died to save me. You rose again. You made a way for me to spend eternity in heaven. And I give you this life. I surrender it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, Here's what I want you to do. You can go to cityrev.org slash faith. If you're watching online or you're here, grab your cell phone. Go to cityrev.org slash faith because we wanna mail you a Bible. It's just gonna ask you a few questions so we can mail you your own Bible. It's our gift to you. If you want a Bible today, then fill out that Get Connected card in front of you. Take that to guest services. We would love to give you a Bible and celebrate this faith step you've taken. Church, we're gonna close by um, celebrating who Jesus is. He's the center of our lives. He's the main character of our lives. He's the center of our church. We're going to celebrate him. Would you stand with me as we close? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.